Before we delve into the Word today, I would like to briefly read you the one-page article I wrote for this month's epistle, church newsletter. Um, I'm not convinced that the vast majority and masses of church members read dutifully the church newsletter. And I'm not talking about just here at St. Philip. I'm talking about any church in God's creation, Mark. So therefore, when I feel that what I have to say may be a little more important, from time to time, I like to share it with you. So this essentially is my New Year's message, in case you have not read it already in our church newsletter. Happy New Year. I pray that you are in good health and spirits as we embark together upon another year of life and of the ministry of sharing the love of Christ. I have been your pastor now for three years. Can you believe that? (laughs) My, how time flies. We have managed our way relatively well through an unprecedented pandemic during that time. A silver lining to that otherwise difficult time is that we were able to make many technological advances. Our worship service, as well as many other meetings, are now available on Zoom and Facebook Live. That is a great blessing, great luxury for us, and we have a substantial following via those avenues. However, I would like to challenge you. Many people have not returned to in-person worship in almost three years because of the ease of viewing us online. Our virtual options were necessary during the pandemic, and they will remain with us moving forward but they were never meant to take the place of in-person worship. I consider our Zoom and Facebook options to be primarily for those who are sick, out of town, or those who have anxiety in crowds. I never thought it would replace in-person worship, but for some of us, it has. I would like to challenge you to return to in-person worship this new year. There is something to be said for communal worship, for seeing people's faces up close, and shaking their hand or hugging them during the passing of the peace. Receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion, the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, is absolutely central to Christian belief and practice, and yet you have to be present physically to receive it, at least here at St. Philip. Regular communal worship is absolutely at the heart of Christian discipleship. We have received 34 new members this past year, And if you don't attend and participate in in in-person worship, you don't know them. And they don't know you. And each group is the poorer for it. I would also like to challenge you not to attend in-person worship only on the occasions when you're serving in a particular capacity. We certainly need and appreciate your service in person, but you are freer to really worship when you don't have those particular responsibilities. And we want to see you and be around you more than when you are fulfilling just a particular task. Put quite simply, we miss you. We need you. You are a very important part of our Christian community of faith and not simply a sideline observer. We are impoverished by your absence each and every week. Hebrews 10 verse 24 reads, And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So let's make 2023 a year of resuming the practice of in-person worship. Let's make 2023 a year of embodying Hebrews 10, verse 24. I look forward to seeing you soon, in person, next week. 
yours in Christ, Pastor Tim. Amen. Well, now that we got that out of the way, let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, this beautiful day in your creation, for the opportunity to worship you again in spirit and in truth, to share our lives with one another alongside each other during this discipleship walk. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, and for your Holy Spirit, and for this season of Epiphany, for revealing yourself to us in so many and various ways. On this day and weekend in particular in the life of our country, we remember your servant and prophet, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We ask that you would give us such a courageous posture of always striving for racial, social, and economic justice in our land and in our world. We ask now, Lord, that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. Grant us a word of hope, of mercy, of triumph, and transformation. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon text for this morning is the Gospel lesson, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. My sermon title for this morning is actually a concept from verses 32 and 33 where it reads, And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, that is, Jesus. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. My sermon title for today is Descend and Remain. Descend and and remain. This morning's text is particularly rich, isn't it? In the opening verse, we hear for the first time that famous designation of Jesus with which we are all familiar. Escape the lips of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is reiterated in verse 36 as John again proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. This particular designation of Jesus is referred to much more often in the biblical book of the end time, namely Revelation, also purportedly written by the same author as this gospel, namely the beloved disciple John. A lamb, of course, was a sacrificial animal back then, hearkening back to Israel's earliest existence when the blood of the lamb would atone for human sinfulness. And, of course, at the Passover would protect the people from the fate of death as they spread lamb's blood over the wooden doorposts of their houses and dwellings. A rationale for Jesus' baptism, otherwise a puzzling event given his own sinless condition, is given actually in verse 31, that he might be revealed to Israel. In this schema, Jesus' baptism is not for his sake, rather, but for ours. Not necessary for him spiritually, but necessary for us, that we might recognize him for who he is. John the Baptist is the first given such insight and understanding as he becomes the first to testify to Jesus' true identity in verse 34. This is the Son of God. Son of God. Lamb of God. Two of Jesus' most well-known titles, both bestowed here in John's opening chapter. The tradition that some of Jesus' disciples were formerly John the Baptist's disciples comes from verses 35 and following today. 
Such does not appear to be the case in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wherein Jesus just seems to encounter them fishing one day on the Sea of Galilee. But such is the case here in this fourth and final gospel. Also unlike the three synoptic gospels, the disciple Andrew is given pride of place here as he is the first disciple actually named in verse number 40. Therefore, in the Eastern Orthodox expression of Christianity, Andrew is given the honorific title, The First Called. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in this gospel, and it's particularly arresting if you have a red-letter Bible in which the words literally explode off a page of otherwise black ink, are as rich and profound as they are ambiguous and unsettling. Verse number 38, what are you looking for? I prefer the older translation here. What do you seek? It's a deep question, isn't it? How would you answer it? Because Jesus is asking it of you today, just as he did to Andrew and the other disciple 2,000 years ago. What do you seek in your life right now? Are you looking for liberation from addiction, from fear and anxiety, from a bad relationship, from crushing and overwhelming financial debt? Are you looking for healing from an ailment or affliction in your body? from depression in your mind, reconciliation in an estranged relationship, from the loss of a loved one, or otherwise a broken heart? Are you looking for justice in America, worldwide? Are you looking for peace in our streets, world peace, Peace of mind, peace in your own home? Are you looking for acceptance, love, joy, forgiveness? Are you looking to hit the lottery? You can chuckle. A lot of people are. Are you looking for the will of God? For the face of God? For deeper purpose and significance in your life? It's a thought-provoking question which gives pause and leads to reflection. What do you see? The disciples' answer is as ambiguous as it is comical, really. They really don't answer him, do they? They merely reply with a question of their own. Verse 38, um, where are you staying? It's very evasive, isn't it? I suspect that this is perhaps a request for intimacy. A request to spend some time 
in conversation with someone at their place where you can get a better idea of who they are. I imagine these two disciples to be playing it safe, to be hedging their bets. They are already disciples of this charismatic, camel-skin-wearing, locust-and-wild-honey-eating, fire-breathing and brimstone-preaching baptizer. They wouldn't want to just switch loyalties, allegiances, and rabbis willy-nilly. If you are really seeking deeply in your life, my friends, there's something to be said for consistency. Have you ever thought what's the best way to get to know someone better, my friends? If you just meet somebody out on the street, on the job, in school, in a bar, in a club, what do you get to know about them? Whatever comes out of their mouth, truth or lies, whatever they choose to reveal. But if you ever go to their house, their residence, their abode, where they live or where they stay, what do you get to see? Their books. What kind of subjects and topics interest them? Their artwork. What kind of paintings or pictures appeal to them? Their personal pictures, framed and on display. Who's important to them and why? Parents, children, friends, significant others. Degrees or certificates of achievement hanging on the wall. CDs, DVDs, trophies, etc. You can learn far more about a person by going to their home or where they stay. Oftentimes our space reveals the most about us. I think these disciples are requesting symbolically, if not literally, to get to know Jesus more honestly, sincerely, and deeply. I think they want to see his books, his artwork, his certificates, his music, his movies, his personal framed pictures, whom he cares about, and why. Jesus' simple response is found in verse 39. Again, stark if you have a red letter edition of Scripture. Come and see. Jesus is kind, gracious, and accommodating enough to make the invitation. Come. Come and see. Intriguingly enough, no record of the ensuing conversation is proffered. Not one indication of any give and take is offered at all. The record is silent on what, if anything, took place or transpired. Verse 41 simply records Andrew's ardor and excitement when he finds and announces to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. We don't know what has transpired in this brief day or afternoon or evening, we know only that they have gone from, to use the verbs, seeking to now finding. I think there are reasons Scripture says certain things and reasons why it doesn't say certain things. As frustrating as it may be on one level not to know more about what happened and the conversation I believe on another level that it was left unrecorded and unattested because quite simply it did not matter. 
I believe that the discussion was not as important as what they saw, what they felt, what they sensed, what they perceived, and what they were surrounded by. You see, it's one thing to explain the theological rationale behind the sacrament of communion, to debate the merits of transubstantiation versus consubstantiation, but sometimes you just quote Psalm 34, O taste and see that the Lord is good. It's one thing to explain the multi-layer strata and significance of the Word of God, the documentary hypothesis and the Q source, for example. But sometimes you just quote Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It would not be without merit for me to explicate the substitutionary doctrine of atonement which Jesus accomplished in His crucifixion, but sometimes it is ample and sufficient merely to harmonize. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Think about it for a second, my friends. We could intellectually parse out this morning the soteriological doctrine of the quadriga justified by grace through faith in the merit of Jesus Christ or we could in a context of weeping cathartic worship simply hum together amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, after spending some time with Jesus, spending time in His presence at the place where He was staying, I think that they felt and they sensed what they, that they had found what and whom they were seeking. If you notice back in verse 38, they address Him as rabbi, which translated means teacher. But after emerging from a transformative period of time with Him in verse 41, they declare we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. They go from rabbi to Messiah, from teacher to anointed, and there are many teachers out there, make no mistake about it, but not a whole lot of anointings. And the anointing is something different and powerful that you can sense and feel and pick up on in perhaps a super rational way. And they're not the only ones in the text who make such a transition either. Yes, in their understanding of Jesus, they go from rabbi slash teacher to anointed slash Messiah, indicating a deeper wisdom and apprehension and appreciation. But when this Jesus emerges in verse 42, he addresses Andrew's brother whom they have just brought to him. You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Jesus sees him differently and so names him differently. He goes from Simon to Cephas or Peter. Cephas means rock or stone, so it is ironically fitting that Christ will later on say to him, you are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus saw something in Peter at first glance that Peter didn't see in himself in all his years. Might that be true for some of us? And here this morning. After the disciples, as the disciples shift in terms of their understanding of exactly who Jesus is, they begin to get new names, new identities, new characters, which he then calls forth from them. 
As they go from teacher to Messiah, he goes from Simon to Peter. As they go from seeking to finding, they themselves realize that God has been in some sense seeking them the whole time, and now they are the ones who are found. And it's all due to Jesus' invitation simply to come and see. There is a final salient feature to this text we ought not overlook. In verse 33, it is revealed to John the Baptist that as he baptizes, the one on whom he sees the Holy Spirit descend and remain is the one, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. In the previous verse, 32, that is precisely what he sees. The Spirit descends and remains on Jesus. I like that, you see, because the Spirit can descend on anybody. It descends on me, and then it eventually departs. It descends on you, and then eventually it departs. We can feel ourselves the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to see great things, believe great things, and accomplish great things, and then it departs, leaving us perhaps normal, quote-unquote, and or exhausted. But the Spirit descended and remained on Jesus it never left. It never departed. And this permanent anointing is what identified him as not only a teacher, but also the Messiah. And notice the same concept, the very same verb, as a matter of fact, in verse number 39, as it applies to the disciples. They came and saw where Jesus was staying, and they what? Remained with him that day. The disciples remain with Jesus as the Holy Spirit remains on Jesus. They themselves are remaining with the one upon whom the Spirit of God remains. Oh, just to remain with Him. Just to spend some quality time with Jesus. Just to accept His offer of forgiveness of sins just to follow Him and exchange yoke with Him and find rest for our souls, just to know Him and feel Him and experience Him in a way that goes beyond doctrine and theology and running a church, all of which those things are important. But just to remain with Him is to go from identifying Him as teacher to declaring Him as Messiah is to go from your old name slash identity, Simon, to your new name slash identity, Peter. Is to go from seeking to finding. Is to go from being sought out by God to being found by God. And it's all because he said, come and see. Come and worship. Come and praise Him. Come and hear His Word. Come and taste His Supper. Come and confess your sins and receive forgiveness for them. Come and fellowship. Come and pray for yourselves and for others. Come and sing the hymns of God. Come and feel the power and the presence and the peace of God which surpass all understanding. Come and remain in worship. Come and remain in the presence of the Lord. Remain with Jesus as the Spirit remains on Him and you shall be changed. Descend and remain. Amen.
And speaking of good theology found in hymns, 